friends and enemies. It's episode 262 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, we, we are really um, happy to have on uh, a guest for this episode, the author of a really excellent new book just out from Verso and Scribe, um, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of the Occupation Around the World. Um, I, I just finished reading the, the conclusion of the book, and it is so, so relevant. It's so deep into a lot of things that we care um, a lot about here on TMK. So, um, Anthony Lowenstein, I'm very pleased to welcome you on TMK and, and, and get into your book. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, the, the book is, it's, is itself the product of so much research, um, uh, like, you know, decades of, of investigation and reporting from you. Um, you're a, um, Australian based, uh, a journalist, but you are, but you've, spent a lot of time in Israel. Um, you talk about this in the book. You've, you've done a lot of, um, you spent a lot of time in Palestine doing reporting there. I mean, this is, of course, a extremely important and extremely contentious topic. Um, but, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not uh, shy about getting into all of the real kind of uh, nitty gritty um, that that you know is, is that you detail in the book the the really you know the truths that people really need to hear about but of course with this it might be helpful to have a little bit of background on you um, before we really pick apart um, the defense industry the occupation all of that kind of stuff so could you just lay out some of your background on like the the really deep investigation you've been doing that goes into this book so the short version is yeah i'm a australian born jew i was born in melbourne in australia in 74 and i grew up in a fairly typical jewish home for those who are not jewish it might sound a bit strange maybe but it's actually pretty common for israel to be supported it's just fairly common that if you're a jew it's changing a bit now which we can talk about but in general my family uh, came from Europe. Most of them were killed in the Holocaust, a fairly sadly typical Jewish story. The ones who got out in 1939, just literally just before World War II started, were escaping wherever they got a visa, so Australia, Canada, US, UK. And initially, most Jews, in fact, were not Zionists. In other words, most Jews didn't particularly believe in the idea of a Jewish state. It was a sort of a strange concept for many Jews many years ago because for them, they were living content, happy lives. Not that I'm idealizing. Obviously, there was anti-Semitism in parts of Europe. But in general, they were German. They were Austrian. They were French. Whatever they were, they didn't believe this idea of a Jewish state seemed like a strange concept. Fast forward to after the Holocaust, and that did change for many Jews, that 
many Jews didn't necessarily want to move to Israel, but they liked the idea of the concept of Israel. Uh, and I was brought up in that idea that, God forbid something happened again as a Jew, we would have a homeland to go to. And for listeners who aren't aware, as a Jew, and again, how Israel defines Judaism is itself problematic. So but let's not go into that now. But essentially, if you can prove, so to speak, that you're Jewish, which basically means you have a Jewish mother, you can get an Israeli passport within two or three months. You are a citizen of that state. And obviously, Palestinians who have, frankly, a far deeper connection cannot get citizenship. So that's inherent racism was there from the beginning. So when I was growing up in Australia, it was fairly common to be supportive of Israel. It was common to hear a lot of racism against Arabs and Palestinians. We as Jews had the right to be there. We had the right to settle the land. We had the right to do what we wanted because of the Holocaust, because of what we went through. In other words, and I didn't articulate this then, but I articulate it now, is it's really a classic case of the um, abused becoming the abuser. You know, one often reads about in literature that people who are sexually abused as kids don't always become abusers, of course, but it's not, it's more common than they will than those who necessarily were not necessarily sexually abused. And I think that's a, that is an apt comparison with Israel that for many Jews, not in terms of the sexual abuse part, but in terms of the idea of a people who were so traumatized, so obliterated, so decimated in the Holocaust, 6 million Jews killed. Uh, there are only 14 million Jews in the world today, give or take. It's not a lot. Um, and the vast majority are in two places, essentially Israel and around New York. I mean, I'm obviously being a bit facetious there, but basically most of Jews are in two places. There are Jews in Australia, in the UK, and Europe, of course, elsewhere. But in general, they're, they're separated in two places in the world, the US and Israel. So when I was growing up, it was common to support Israel. There was an attempt to raise money for Israel, but there wasn't really a humanity of Palestinians. Palestinians didn't really exist. I didn't meet a Palestinian. I didn't really hear of a Palestinian. And for people, everyone here, at least some of you are a bit of maybe of my vintage, I think pre-internet really was radically different. It was more difficult to hear Palestinian voices, to see them, to understand what they were experiencing in the West Bank or Gaza. So anyway, kind of long story short, fast forward to, um, I guess, post 9-11 in a way, my journalistic career started in Sydney in 2003. I started writing about Palestine shortly after that as a critical, I mean, I've always been a secular, I'm not religious, I'm a secular, these days, anti-Zionist Jew. Back then, I wouldn't have called myself that. But I was writing critically about Israel, and pretty much from the beginning, I just was absolutely hammered by the Israel lobby, by the Jewish community. I got support too, but when I say hammered, I mean this, of course, was before social media, mostly emails, death threats, hate mail, I mean crazy stuff. My then-girlfriend was getting death threats because of my work. Now, living in Australia, I wasn't necessarily expecting to be killed, thankfully, but it's pretty uncomfortable and it, it impacts your life, it impacts how you view your relationship with a woman or a man or whatever your relationship might be and it was difficult, to be honest. Um, but I went to Israel-Palestine in 2005 for the first time and I was reporting there for my first book, My Israel Question, in 2006 
And since then, I've been visiting every three or four years. I've been to the West Bank and Gaza reporting from there. I was living in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020, which is where some of the research for this book was done. Came back to Australia just as COVID was taking off in the early 20 in uh, early 2020 to have another child. And yeah, I guess we can talk about the genesis of what the book is. But in short, I have come to a point now where, as a Jew, I am routinely and regularly ashamed of what Israel is doing because it claims to speak in my name. Israel defines itself as a Jewish state to represent all Jews. Now, of course, that's nonsense, really. I mean, you can't represent every Jew in the world as a country, but it claims to do so. So therefore, if you're not supportive of Israel, you're somehow turning against the tribe. And for many, many Jews, Israel has become their religion. It's replaced religion and it's become their religion, this sort of blind tribalism, which I think is really unhealthy. Yeah, and and I mean, I think, you know, as leftists, as all of of us are and our listeners are, right, like the uh, Israel-Palestine, you know, it's often called a conflict, but it's not. It's not a conflict. It's an occupation. It's it's extremely asymmetrical and one sided. It's it's uh, it's in no way a conflict. But I think that there is a you know a general kind of sense of what this looks like, or that it's a it's a form of oppression or domination that needs to be you know um, called out and 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 fought against in some way through BDS or or whatever, right? But I think there's a just a general sense that this is a um, an important leftist cause, but I really don't think a lot of people have any actual sense of the extent um, to which the the occupation exists and how it's enacted that you get into um, in the book, the extent to which um, the occupation is um, the primary political economy of, uh, of Israel. It's not just this thing that they have to deal with. Um, it is a engine of of, of growth and legitimacy um, for um, Israel, so it's something that needs to be perpetuated um, in the in the ways that you you outline um, and the extent to which it has, as your subtitle puts it, been exported um, to around the world. I mean, I first got a, a taste of this myself. For a very long time, I studied um, the political economy of smart cities and policing technology. Um, and it, if you're doing that in any kind of critical way, it's not long before you start seeing suddenly a lot of uh, Israeli um, companies are supplying the, the t- uh, technologies of surveillance and control. Um, their tactics are all over the place. You see it in the, the favelas and the pacification units of Brazil. Um, you see it in, in the border technologies um, around the world. Like, you know, this was this for me kind of studying the political economy of technology and of smart cities. You know, you start seeing the uh, a, a little bit of a tip of the iceberg, the extent to which Israel is all over that market, and it's 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 all over the place now. I mean, I um I, maybe I think we can get into this around this kind of idea of the startup nation um, that you discuss in the book as well. But you know, in my current research project, I study the political economy of insurance technology and. 
Israel has a massively outsized um, insure tech company and startup uh, globally because a lot of that technology is technologies of data analytics and social sorting and scoring and all of that, which is you know easily taken from one sector and applied to a different sector. And so it's like no matter what area of technology you look at, if it has something to do with surveillance and control, it's seemingly Israeli companies have this outsized position in that market. So could you could you talk a little bit about why that is the case? <laughs> I will. And it's interesting. I mean, I obviously agree with that assessment. And yet so much of the international media coverage around that depoliticizes it. It'll say things like, Israel's so innovative. They are a startup nation. Now they have to just develop these amazing technologies. And wow, how did that happen without mentioning, why do you think that's happening? And where is that happening? Where is that experience coming from to be able to lead to those technologies? Now, obviously, not every startup that Israel does is defense-related. It's not, but a hell of a lot are. And why? Well, Israel has one of the longest occupations of modern times, 56 years since 1967 and counting. Um, there's barely any other occupations longer in modern times. I mean, there was an occupation of sorts since 1948, since Israel's birth. But essentially, for most of Israel's existence, there's been a form of repression against non-Jews, Palestinians, essentially. And pretty much from the beginning, from 1948, it's been a highly militarized society. Um, military service is compulsory. There are a number of um, ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't go, we don't have to go into the details, but the majority of, and Palestinians, of course, don't serve in the military, to be clear. But the vast majority of Israeli Jews serve in the military, have no choice but to serve in the military, and many of them serve in the West Bank. And enforcing the occupation, seeing the daily grind of what occupation means, and you're right, many listeners might not be aware of what that actually means. They may be aware of, Oh, Israel's doing some bad shit maybe in Palestine. But what does that practically mean? It means that for the vast bulk of Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, including in Israel itself, they're not treated the same as Jews. They are second-class citizens. They're either under, under occupation. It's restricted in terms of their movement. It's restricted who they can literally marry. It's restricted in terms of, in terms of where they can go. It, you know, what Israel's created is really, as I say in the book, an architecture of control where virtually every aspect of Palestinian life is controlled. And you need tools and technologies to do that, both before the digital era and now in the, I mean, I sort of say, not that, not that 9-11 was pre and post digital era, but I say 9-11, which we can discuss, really turbocharged the industry in uh, in Israel and the US for that matter. So, for decades and decades, since 1967 particularly, Israel has promoted itself as an expert and a world leader in so-called counterinsurgency. How do you fight a minority you don't like, you don't want, you have to control, an enemy? And as I show in the book, there are so many examples of pretty much every repressive regime in the last half century, with very few exceptions, Israel has both been there, assisted, trained, armed, defended. Now, who are we talking about here? Everyone from uh, 
Chile under Pinochet from 1973. I'm talking about apartheid South Africa. I'm talking about the really some of them were genocidal regimes in Latin and South America in the 70s and 80s, back to course also by the US. I mean, Guatemala, for example, was literally committing genocide in the early 80s against indigenous population. And who was a key ally helping that was Israel. The Guatemalan regime at the time was asking for Israeli experience, so to speak, Israeli training, Israeli know-how. And this was principally because they saw and admired what they were doing in the West Bank, they being Israel or Gaza at the time. So you have, as I show in the book, no one knows the exact figure, but I've through various research, at least 130 countries, which is obviously the majority of countries in the world, have had a some kind of Israeli defense equipment. That could be spyware, or it could be in the modern age, so-called smart walls or biometric tools or drones, training, arming. And Israel does this, I guess, for a few reasons in its logic. One, it makes money. It's pure capitalism. But two, it's to make friends. Now, obviously, the very transactional friends. <laughs> Israel, I think, realized after 1967, after the start of the occupation, a lot of countries didn't like what it was doing. And you have a lot, a lot of Arab states and other nations saying, African states, and of course, this is during the Cold War. So, of course, some states align themselves more with the Soviets and some, of course, with the US and Israel. But the Cold War narrative has very much been sold as the Soviet Union's on one side and America's on the other side. Israel was key to that side of, on the, with the US. In fact, there are certain places where even the US, even the US, which loves a good death squad, loves a good death squad, was unwilling, unable to sell defense equipment, weapons, arms to a repressive state. Israel would just walk in with American know-how, and arm them, train them. So they kind of, um, Israel almost became America's wingman in funding repression around the world. And that's really important because America and Israel, of course, had, a, had and have a very close relationship. But also during the Cold War, when Israel was looking for friends, so-called transactional friends, and what, is, what does friendship mean in that context? It means voting in the UN in a certain way. It means not speaking too loudly against what Israel is doing. It means buying your weapons. And include, Israel was often partnering with openly anti-Semitic regimes. I mean, Israel is a Jewish state. States in Latin and South America that were knowingly holding and hiding Nazi war criminals. I mean, you can't get much more debased than that. They had no problem working with them. States that were abusing and torturing Jews. Not that Jews are the only important people in the world. Of course they're not. But if you're a Jewish state, you'd think that your at least a one priority would be to protect other Jews. You know, we're a relatively small global population. As I said, now 14 to 15 million, which is pretty tiny compared to Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, etc. So made no difference. So all those regimes, they weren't all necessarily just buying equipment because they'd been tested in the West Bank, or that was in Gaza, that was a key part of it. And one thing I talk about in the book is, and this was the case in the past, and it's definitely become the case in the 21st century, Israel's also was and remains 
a key model of ethno-nationalism. This idea somehow that, and this is partly why I wrote the book actually, almost as a warning to say we have growing numbers of states around the world that will just buy Israeli spyware because they want to spy on their citizens. Okay, not that that's okay, but that's one reason. But there are other states, and the one that the most obvious now is India. India is the biggest country in the world population-wise. It's the self-described um, biggest democracy in the world. It's essentially, in my view, a Hindu fundamentalist state. It openly discriminates against non-Hindus. Some of its uh, leadership openly talks about ethnic cleansing against Muslims. Israel and India are very, very close. They're very, very close. And I'm not suggesting that <clears throat> India is doing horrible shit because of Israel, but I'm saying India is inspired by Israel to the point where you have Indian officials openly saying that they admire what Israel is doing in the West Bank and they want to do similar things in Kashmir, namely bringing many, many more Hindus to um, settle in Muslim-majority areas. So... And, of course, India also buys huge amounts of Israeli defence equipment and spyware and drones, etc. So all these issues, I think, point to a Israeli state that is not just off the leash but essentially has complete global impunity to act as it wants, behave as it wants, abuse as it wants. There's no real accountability for anything, which of course is the same for the US. I mean, it's not unique to Israel. I mean, the US essentially does what it wants as well. So that's the kind of context, I guess, that how Israel behaves in the last 50 plus years. The point that you raised about the ethno-nationalism I would love, you know, there's so many directions to go, but I would love to start there because I think, you know, I, I've just finished reading, rereading uh, Crack Up Capitalism, which was Quinn Slobodian's book on, you know, the, the, the fucking weirdos and market zealots and radicals who have been yeah. trying to free capitalism from democracy. But one of the things that pops up constantly is how there are attempts to create apartheid states or to replicate the structure of apartheid states because they've, they've proven of their proven method of, you know, artificially creating barriers that distort other people's ability to intervene in whatever law that you have, uh, while still proving attractive to capital, while still proving um, capable of engaging in diplomacy or international relations or whatever a state might need to do while it has uh, a police state running around at home murdering and killing citizens and also continuing to develop tech or developing industry and attracting that capital. And I feel like, you know, and I think one of the you know big thorough lines and trunks of this book is highlighting how beyond the fact that, you know, apartheid is this racist poison and, and the fact that uh, there's like a great tragedy of it also happening in Israel in the wake of, of the Holocaust and it, it in in succession with collaboration with countries that were involved in the extermination, right, and suppression of Jews, there is also that an apartheid state necessarily is going to develop an advanced tech in certain ways that will 
make things worse every single other part of the world, right? As you just listed out in the Hindu nationalist states, right? And any sort of, you know, re- regimes that try to ascend and, 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 and crack down on migrants, crack down on minorities. Uh, so I would love to maybe talk a bit also about this ethno-nationalism and, and how you talk about it in the book and how you've been thinking about it also as like this threat to the rest of the world in developing like new kind of frontiers of of terrorize of terror attack essentially of murder attack of repressive attack i mean one of the good contexts for people would be to think about why israel and apartheid south africa were so close this was not just simply because both nations were selling defense equipment to each other south africa wanted uranium to build a nuclear bomb, and thank God that never actually happened. Yes, fuck. Um, I mean, Israel has, of course, nuclear weapons <laughs> yes. now. So, but South Africa, <sighs> the hands of a nuclear weapon in an apartheid. Well, Israel, as I said, Israel has it, but it's apartheid South Africa. It's not a pretty picture. Anyway, it never happened, as yeah. far as we're aware. <laughs> um, but there's a reason why both those nations, and of course, apartheid there ends in 1994. I mean, one can argue, I think, with some justification that. There is still apartheid in South Africa. There's no economic apartheid, but that's almost a slightly separate issue. But officially, apartheid ended in 1994. Okay. But throughout its entire history, Israel was one of its closest allies right to the end, right to the end, when most of the world, even the US and the UK, had finally turned against South Africa for their own self-interested reasons, but whatever. Israel was right there. And I have in the book documents of declassified details of Israeli officials kind of worried about what that means for their relationship, not worried about the fact that the apartheid regime wasn't that great. Who gives a shit about that, right? And the reason that's important is that there was an ideological alignment. You had Israeli officials going to South Africa, including the Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who would go to South Africa see what South Africa was doing to its black population, building these so-called bantistans, right, these self-described self-rule areas, which essentially were apartheid areas that, of course, the the, uh, minority white government had complete control over, and they wanted that in the West Bank. And that's exactly what Israel has created in the West Bank. They're essentially bantistans. The Palestinian Authority, which is nominally in charge there, is essentially a colonial overlord paid for by the west to manage the occupation for israel which is why more and more palestinians loathe the palestinian authority but it was more than that it was also you had a situation where south african apartheid leaders would go to israel there's a very infamous case in 1976 of john vorster who was then the leader of south africa going to yad vashem which is the holocaust memorial in jerusalem this guy to be clear during World War II had been in prison for his obsession and love of Nazism and Hitler. So not the best guy. And you have a state dinner in Israel where um, Israeli leaders, they're toasting this guy and toasting that alliance. Why? They saw both nations in a war against barbarism. Obviously in South Africa it was against blacks and Israel was against Palestinians. And that alliance wasn't just economic, although that was part of it, it was ideological. We're on the front line here against these awful brutes who want to destroy us, our noble, in their view, white South Africans or noble uh, Israeli Jews. And 
I think that ideological element has been forgotten, why they were so close to each other. Now, obviously, apartheid South Africa, as I said, ended officially in 1994, but I do see one of the so-called appeals of Israel for many people today, and I talk about this in the book. Yes, India is the most obvious example. There's a reason, for example, why many of the global far right love Israel, love Israel, admire Israel. Now, Traditionally, the far right, listeners will pity be aware of this, don't like Jews, anti-Semitic, neo-Nazis, don't like Jewish people, subscribe to ridiculous conspiracy theories around Jews. And yet, if you go to some far right rallies in the US, the UK, Australia, they're waving the Israeli flag. On the face, you might be like, what the fuck is going on here? This is mad. But actually, when you unpack it, it sort of makes sense. Why? These far-right groups and individuals love the idea of an ethno-state. They love, in their view, they want to create a Christian ethno-nationalist utopia, so they would argue. And it's why, for example, Richard Spencer, the so-called alt-right leader from a few years ago, the beginning of the Trump era, said, I'm a white Zionist. I'm a white Zionist. I love what Israel's doing. Now, he doesn't like Jews. He doesn't like what, you know, he doesn't like the idea of a Jewish state. But he admires what Israel is doing to its Palestinian population. That's his vision for a Christian ethno-nationalist state. And that's why when you have far-right protests around the world against whatever they're protesting, the Israeli flag has become central to that. And what's worse is that the Israeli government over the years is more than happy to partner with some of these far-right governments and far-right groups, despite the fact that they know they're anti-Semitic. Now, what does that say to you about, is a success of Israeli governments, not just Netanyahu, others as well, that if you are partnering with groups that I would argue hate you and want to destroy you, what does that say about your own identity of as a nation, as a individual, as a religion as a race i mean as someone i mean i'm a human obviously before i'm a jew but as a human and a jew i find that kind of moral blindness and moral collapse just despicable and yet so many blind supporters of israel will say well we have to make friends around the world you can't pick your friends in a tough environment really you can't pick your friends who are anti-semitic and far right okay How's that going to go for you in the long run? Not well, I would suggest. So it's, yeah, those alliances I think are not often discussed because, frankly, for a lot of people, it's pretty damn embarrassing and shameful. Yeah, it, I mean, it raises just all of these contra- seeming contradictions, at least. I mean, go, you know, you have this uh, great quote that's very telling quote from Nelson Mandela in a 1993 speech he gave where he said, quote, the people of South Africa will never forget the support of the state of Israel to the apartheid regime. And this is 1993. This is, you know, right up to the buzzer beater of the end of yeah. apartheid. <laughs> Can I say one thing very quickly there? It's worth saying though that today, and I'm not a big fan of the ANC government in South Africa for a range of reasons, but it is very, very pro-Palestine has been for decades, remains very pro-Palestine, I would argue for exactly that reason. 
for exactly that reason, where you have South African leaders who have been to uh, Palestine, Desmond Tutu, the late Desmond Tutu, who said what's happening in Palestine is worse than what happened to us. So there is an understanding, I guess, a visceral understanding of what Israel is doing to Palestinians. No, I mean that's that's you know excellent context, and I mean to that as well. You you have you detail um, extensively in the book the relationship and support between Israel and Myanmar um, in the midst of their you know uh, genocide against the uh, Muslim Rohingya population, um, and and th- you know this is as you said this is just just. One of, uh, uh, among many, 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 uh, cases of this over decades around the world, um, to the point where, and I, I want to raise this as well, where seemingly this, this makes very little sense. It's, it's ideologically inconsistent and strategically myopic. And for all the reasons you mentioned around, you know, how, how are you, uh, you know, not, how are you giving support to people who clearly don't want you to exist, to see you as a model, but want to eradicate you at the same time. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, or, and, and, and as well, this is going to, you know, bite you in the ass in the not near future or potentially, I mean, it's to the point where you have people like, you know, Colin Powell, right? Not, not the, uh, uh, a bleeding heart liberal by any means saying that Israel is going to become a strategic liability for the United States because of its, um, actions and its relationships, because of its, uh, you know, uh, willingness to provide material support to a wide range of authoritarian and genocidal uh, regimes around the world that, you know, this is going to blow back on the U.S. in a, in a major way because the U.S. is, you know, one of the major, um, patrons of, of Israel. I mean, Europe is too, to a very large extent. But, um, I wonder as well, you detail in the book how, you know, up until quite recently, like 10% of Israel's GDP came for, di- from direct American support, right? Direct, uh, support from the American government, which is massive. And so that's, you know, that that creates this kind of principal agent relationship right um where you know the the israel becomes this kind of client state of the us and you ex- you detail as well i mean over decades you talk about the iran contra affair um as well as many others where israel does kind of become this uh this this you know, skunk works unit of the U.S. where they can do stuff that the U.S. government that doesn't necessarily want to be seen um, doing. But you also detail how that 10% is no longer the case. It's only now it's only 1% uh, of, of Israel's um, economy comes from American support. And it does seem like uh, Israel is no longer afraid to bite the hand that feeds. And you see this in some of the really um, strong words of condemnation um, from people like Netanyahu, who are not afraid to direct you know, full-bore attacks against the United States, um, do things that are very explicitly against U.S. interest, um, that, they, that they seem like we don't need you anymore. Right. We're not, we're not leashed by you. We're not constrained by you. Um, and it does kind of seem like this, a bit of a, a, of a mask off moment as well, where Israel feels like they no longer are 
it's it's weird to think anybody could be restrained by a, a government like the United States, which is itself so interventionist and so extreme in its politics. Um, but it does seem like from your uh, book that that is a feeling in Israel. And we see this as well with the trajectory of um, the Israeli government um, and, and society, which is progressively and exponentially going towards more and more extreme uh, right-wing politics and more and more extremely radical and explicit uh, genocidal uh, apartheid um, kind of policies um, against Palestine, but also um, you know in, in its uh, uh, position around the world geopolitically. Yes, and what I think, I mean, I do talk about that in the book. You're right that the there's a growing. I guess brazenness really amongst many in the Israeli elite, not just politics but also media, to sort of say to America, you know, butt out of our business, as if somehow America has restrained Israeli actions. I mean, which is an absurd idea because, I mean, I guess, I mean, I mean the ultimate vision of some of the most extreme Israeli hardliners actually is Jewish control over most of the Middle East. Now, you might hear that and say, that sounds insane. Can you imagine Israel controlling Jordan, Lebanon, um, Egypt? I mean, right now it does seem insane. But the fear that many of us have, and I talk about this at the end of the book, is there's a growing constituency within Israel amongst the Amer Israeli Jewish population. Most polling would suggest close to 50%, so that's probably more. And now you have actual members of the Israeli government openly advocating for ethnic cleansing, talking about the mass removal, when I say non-violently, I mean, I don't know how, you know, obviously there's a way to do that in inverted commas violently and less violently, but the mass expulsion of huge numbers of Palestinians, the argument being we didn't finish the job in 1948. It wasn't finished. And the idea that you would have close to a half of the Israeli Jewish population advocating this and most poll uh, polling also suggests that the Israeli youth are becoming much more right-wing, not left-wing, is a pretty toxic mix. And now, years ago, when I was thinking about this, I would have thought, well, the world's not going to accept that. I mean, they would surely speak out. My view about that now has sadly changed. I think the EU would release a very terse press release and say we're very concerned about this ethnic cleansing. Okay, great. The Arab countries, as leaders are in bed with Israel and want their technology, their spyware and their drones and their defence equipment. Okay, so they're a lost cause. They could be bribed, I would argue, to take all these Palestinians, Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, who knows where else. The US, of course, is the unknown here. Now, if it's someone like a Trump, Trump or a DeSantis or someone like that, my guess is they would say, totally justified, do your best. And I'm not a fan of Joe Biden. Let's put that very clearly on the record. But how a Democrat would respond is a bit more unclear. I don't know. I don't know. No one knows. And that's how it never gets to that point. Democrats obviously are very, very pro-Israel, but they're not as mad, frankly. I mean, there's much more. There is a civil war going on in the American Democratic Party and the Jewish community around Israel. There's no doubt about that. What I mean by that is there is a, you don't see that reflected so much with Joe Biden or, you know, the current U.S. government, which are very pro-Israel. But... Within the Jewish community, there is currently a very big, it's a civil war going on between generally younger Jews versus older Jews. It's not quite as neat as that, but 
that's the easiest way to frame it, of older Jews who are very pro-Israel, much more uncritical, and younger Jews who are increasingly t- speaking out, who don't accept what's happening, who don't see it as automatic that they should support Israel because they're Jewish. And in the Democratic Party itself, this year for the first time ever, a Pew poll found that the majority of Democratic voters supported Palestinians over Israelis. That is significant. Now, where does that lead politically? Good question. I mean, I don't know yet, and that's I guess that's, that's what's required um, organising to put pressure on Democratic leaders. I mean, of course, the un- one of the big unspoken issues at the moment around has been for years around Democratic politics. I should also say, of course, the Republican Party on this issue is a lost cause. I mean, it might be obvious to say that to listeners, but complete lost cause. I'm not saying there are no Republicans who think critically on this issue. I'm sure there are, but you don't hear from them. So, I mean, if Republicans get back in in 24 or 28, things will basically be what happened with Trump. They, he accelerated what was happening anyway. He accelerated the current trends. I mean, Trump opening the embassy, you know, in Jerusalem, accepting everything Israel did. I mean, it's not like Democrats are that different. Um, Trump in some ways is much more honest, frankly, about how the U.S. views Israel. Um, but what needs to happen or what hopefully might happen is a greater pressure on Democrats to, and not that I'm a big fan of those two parties to make it very clear, but, you know, the two, the two parties that currently exist majority-wise in the US. And also just finally on this point, you know, the big unspoken issue that people feel uncomfortable talking about is why the Democratic Party is so pro-Israel. People would say, well, why, why is Joe Biden love Israel so much? Why is that? You'd say he's a Zionist. Okay, but why? Like what, what is the reason why these leading politicians for years, whether it's Biden or Obama or Clinton, you can go back? And a big factor, though not the only one, in terms of why the party is finding it so difficult to turn the Titanic around, so to speak, is Jewish Democratic donors. It's a massive factor. Some of the key major Democratic donors who give huge amounts of money are very hardline pro-Israel Zionists. Now, the reason I say that can be difficult to talk about in some places is that it can, if it's not spoken about sensitively, play into, you know, tropes about rich Jews are pulling the strings. Now, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying, and there's evidence for that, it's in the book and other people's writing, is that some of the key large democratic donors are madly pro-Israel. That, that, that's how political parties make decisions, for the good or the bad, in this case obviously for the bad. And I do think we need to have that conversation while being aware that, as I said, the idea of rich Jews pulling the strings has a long and obviously grim history. So, yeah, but that's a big factor in democratic politics. One of the things that I kind of like gleamed from this conversation and from parts of the book that I've read through is it seems like the the American-Israeli connection really kind of balances itself more on the relation of what capitalism means to American politics and seeing how successful Israeli capitalism is, even knowing that Israeli is an apartheid state. The United States realizes that at any point they can model that same system and keep on continuing doing what they're doing with capitalism. If the world sees that happen... And then says, well, we can't do anything about it. It's just going to essentially open the floodgates, like you mentioned, in India and other places. You know? But I think, I think the, 
American politics itself, you know, the, the Republicans, most of which are hard, hard right Christians, you know, they have a reason for mm. their support of Israel and everything like that, because it's all something in a fucking, the book yeah. of revelations. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't really know what the story is, but they hear that, you know, you, you see like far right American Christians, you know, flying, you know, Israeli flags when a lot of them don't like Jewish people. I think that's right. I think, I think the, the connection point here is capital in a lot of ways. I mean, we've talked about in the past how, um, evangelicalism is a theology of capitalism, right? Um, you know, fundamentally. And, and I, and, and I think you detail a lot in the book how much capitalism is a ruling ideology, um, in Israel as well. Um, and this goes as well. Maybe we could talk a, a more about the um the defense industry um the uh you know the the kind of economic and technological um relationships that it has and how these do supersede in a really material way the politics right like you mentioned that like you know the eu might send a, a send out a terse press release um while also spending billions of dollars on border control technologies and drones to um surveil police and turn away migrants um you know trying to cross over into europe for example um, and we see the same thing you know you talk about the uh the extensive relationship between arizona um and israel um for this exact reason i mean as well you know we've talked a ton on the show about how you know w- you can't understand the police unless you understand them within the context of capitalism, right? The police in, in major American cities, Australia, Europe, you know, these are the foot soldiers of capital, making sure mm. that business can keep happening um, and suppressing any threats to business. Um, and the police are trained by uh, Israel, by the IDF. They're sent on these kind of, dim, you know, dim, dim, uh, diplomatic missions to learn about the tactics and and bring that back to American and European cities. And so, you know, let's, I think let's get a bit more into the industry here and how much that plays a really key part in, in all of this. You know, one of the key points around, we've been talking a bit about the U.S.-Israel relationship, is that so much of the money that the U.S. is giving to Israel every year, which is both aid and so-called military aid, the exact number is always a bit murky, but it's roughly 3 to $5 billion per year, which puts it in one of the top aid recipients in the world by far. The other top ones from the US, or Afghanistan for years, in fact, was one of the highest, obviously much less so now that the Taliban are back in charge, but Egypt and Jordan are also um, very big recipients of US aid. So they're all client states essentially. But one of the key deals of that aid is that Israel has to spend a lot of that military money in the US on the US weapons industry. That's how the deal works. So the US is doing it to some extent with a degree of self-interest. And look, I do say, show extensively in the book how there is such a the Israeli arms industry has developed over decades, of course, and a lot of that those weapons are tested in Palestine first on Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza. Some of those weapons don't necessarily kill you. They could be, um, as I said, facial recognition technology, biometric data collecting, so-called smart walls, drones, some of which are armed, some of which are not. 
there's huge amounts spyware. I mean, obviously, some listeners will remember the whole Pegasus scandal in the last years, which is a sophisticated, the most sophisticated spyware in the world. So, if your phone essentially is hacked by Pegasus, all the contents of your phone can be sucked up, you, and you won't even know. So, literally everything. Doesn't matter what apps you use, whether you use, you think Signal, you know, a lot of people use Signal these days. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference if you're using Signal. If your phone is captured, everything is captured. The end, right? So that spyware has ended up on uh, phones in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. Israel has been selling those uh, weapons. I mean, they're, they're weapon, I mean, they're, they're cyber weapons. To, I mean, the countries are too even hard to name them all. Everyone from UAE, Saudi Arabia, the US, um, Bangladesh. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And they're sold partly, and Israel's been doing this a lot in the last 10 years with Netanyahu or the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, who basically go around to states that want to have closer relations with Israel. And they hold out these tools as a diplomatic carrot. They say, we'd love to be friends with you. And I'm not, I'm not inside those rooms when those conversations are happening, but I know how they work. We'd love to be friends with you. You want to be friends with us. Let's, let's make a deal. We will sell you this amazingly sophisticated spyware that you can use against your dissidents and activists and journalists and whoever you don't like. And you, for example, maybe won't vote against us at the UN. Like this is how it works. This is how the, the brutal real politic actually operates. So the Israeli spyware industry is surging. And in fact, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, huge numbers of nations have been coming to Israel, nations in Europe, and begging for Israeli missile defense shields, spyware. I mean, Ukraine has been asking for years, by the way, for Israeli spyware, and uh, Israel's refused to sell it to them. Why? Because they want to be still close to Russia. They want to have close relations with Russia because they, for years, Israel has been allowed to bomb targets inside Syria and Russia controls the skies in Syria. So they want to keep sweet with old Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's all messy and ugly, but this is, you know, the brutal reality of, I guess, Middle East politics. The reason I say all this is that, of course, yes. Before you say that real quick, I I just want to underscore how remarkable that is because Israel will only not sell things to essentially three people, North Korea, Iran, and Syria. Otherwise, everybody else is on the table. (laughs) Yeah, as far as we're aware. It it makes it remarkable that they uh, said, we're not going to sell this to Ukraine because it's not as if they have a long list of of people they don't do deals with. It's As far as we're aware, it's an extremely short list. And so it's remarkable um, at this time that Ukraine would be on that list for the reason of, well, Russia's a bigger market and we don't want to shut ourselves off from that market. Israel was criticised a lot by the US in the last year and a half that it seemed to be unwilling to sell much defence equipment to Ukraine, again, principally because not so much that Russia is a bigger market or that Russia has bought equipment, they want to have freedom in the skies in Syria. That's what this is really about, right? But, I mean, as I said before, the US remains the world's biggest arms dealer. By far, it's about 40% of the world. Israel is now the 10th roughly, 
So the other countries, you know, the US remains the premier arms dealer in the world. Well done, America. About 40% of the world is sold by the US. But what you have found in the last years is that Israel's industry obviously is growing. As you said, it sells these tools and technologies to countless nations. And I mean, the issue of migration, I think, is a really interesting one. And I touch on this a lot in the book, of course, because anyone who understands where geopolitics is going is we are facing in the current and coming decades, almost certainly, an increasing number of climate refugees and refugees in general. The number at the moment globally is the highest since World War II. Roughly, I think it's 75, 80 million people who are migrants who, you know, are looking for safer homes for their families. And that number is going to increase. And what Israel is doing, and of course other countries too, but we're talking about Israel, is selling a lot of the tools to try to, I would say, keep those migrants at bay. What does that mean? Uh, so-called smart walls, higher walls, surveillance drones, armed drones. But I don't think we're that far away, frankly, from various nations, and this may be an Israeli drone or maybe not, but I'm, I mean, I feel very pessimistic and dystopian about where global migration is going and Western responses to it because I fear we're not far away from nations using drones to shoot people out of the sky. So, you know, shoot people out of, the, you know, out of their boats, for example, crossing the Mediterranean. I think we're not far away from the U.S. much more aggressively literally killing people on the U.S.-Mexico border. We're not far away from that at all. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right, especially because it's like, you know, already with the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, while there may not be an explicit policy mm. to murder people, the policy still is. Absolutely they are going to die and yes. it is our, you know, strategy to construct this border and to, you know, keep yeah. things such that we can, there's predictably an, uh, you know, deterrent here. Yes. And I do think that, you know, if the techno, if they had the technology to increase the deterrent, they would. And one of the ways that they'll just have to, you know, uh, add that deterrent is, is integration of force. Right. I, I do think that apartheid tech, especially disaster apartheid tech is going to be like a huge, I mean, rush. Like one of my nightmare scenarios is like a major metropolis gets seriously uh, undermined by uh, a superstorm or some sort of freak climate event, maybe a heat stroke that you know, kills a large number of residents, maybe a storm that surges and swallows it up, or maybe something that destroys the capacity for, for power, for you know, gas or for, you know, key supplies to get into the city. And then it's like, if you have at least one major site of migration combined with the shock of that, I can't imagine how fast um, this sort of apartheid tech would pro- would pop up and how much more violent and ruthless an enforcement of these boundaries would suddenly become. Um, I feel like now we kind of live in a transitory boundary state where it's like, oh, uh, well, like, we understand there's there's climate refugees at the moment, but because the vast majority of them are black and brown and coming in already established migration patterns, there's a little bit of a cover there, you know, and the and the distraction from what's which I think you're right is like lurking around the corner. So yeah, and you get at this in the the conclusion mm-hmm. of the book too. It's like, and we we mm-hmm. really do not understand, or at least we're not confronting <sighs> yeah. what 
that that reality is going to look like very shortly in terms of climate disasters, cl- you know, climate refugees, um, and the uh, exterminationist response to that by countries that are already testing those waters and building those capacities. And and I just want to actually read a, a paragraph from the conclusion of, of of the book that really touches on this in a really um, you know sobering and direct way, where you say. Uh, and this is here talking about what um, uh, Jeff Halper, the uh, Israeli-American academic, uh, has called, as you uh, as you quote him, quote, the global pacification industry um, in Israel. And so I'll, I'll quote from um, a paragraph at near the end of, of your book, Anthony, you write, Quote, Israel's Palestine laboratory thrives on global disruption and violence. The worsening climate crisis will benefit Israel's defense sector in a future where nation states do not respond with active measures to reduce the impacts of surging temperatures, but instead ghettoize themselves, Israel style. What this means in practice is higher walls and tighter borders, greater surveillance of refugees, facial recognition, drones, smart fences, and biometric databases. By 2025, the border surveillance industrial complex is estimated to be worth 68 billion U.S. dollars, and Israel companies like Elbit are guaranteed to be among the main beneficiaries. You go on to explain how you know the 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 worse things get the better things get for Israel in terms of the industry and the markets uh, for these technologies, which are already massive uh, and continue to grow. I mean, you explain um, the uh, the border industrial complex in Europe has itself grown um, billions and billions of dollars in just the last decade. Uh, and a lot of this is, you know, at, to the, to the, uh, Benefits, you know, it benefits Israel um, because a lot of that money is directed towards uh, contracts with uh, Israeli companies that are creating these technologies that are, as the you know, the title of your book um, is a reference to this idea that these technologies are battle tested, right? That they are they're not just proven uh, in simulations or exercises; they are proven on the ground in the field against real life. Uh, you know, subhumans, as I think that you know the Palestine uh, Palestinian people are treated, um, and that's really attractive uh, to all the other countries in the world who either actively want to do that or see themselves in a near future where they're going to you know feel like they have no choice but to do that to um, their own pe- to some other group of, uh, of of people. I think that's true, and. I mean, obviously, when I write that in the conclusion, I mean, nothing is inevitable, (laughs) and yet I feel like it is very likely. There's obviously a difference, right, between where the future goes to some extent up to us, but, yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic around where we seem to be going. I mean, I have a number of quotes in the book I haven't got right in front of me, but essentially this idea, as you have mentioned, that it's almost the growing Palestinianization of vast parts of the world. What does that mean? That means that what Israel has created in Gaza, open-air prison, ghettoized population, there's roughly 2.2 million Palestinians, very little movement in and out, and that population basically is is pacified. Now, I don't mean that to demean Palestinians in Gaza. I've spent time there and obviously there's resistance there and they are not leaving and they're there and they're going to stay there and fuck you, we're not going to go. But 
the conditions in which they live are bloody hard. And if there is a, if the so-called model is seen as appealing to vast other countries around the world that say, well, Israel's been able to do this. And of course, the idea of doing it and getting away with it, I think is vital here, that a state that has complete impunity can basically act as it wants. So if there's a desire to create many more Gazas around the world, getaways, communes, I have a quote from, I think, someone working in Kashmir who fears that what's going to happen to her part of the world, which obviously is Indian-controlled territory, in years to come could potentially be just like Gaza, massively militarised, which it is anyway, huge amounts of Muslim population who are demeaned, uh, growing numbers of Hindus being brought in from mainland India to try to settle the land, very much like what Israel is doing in the West Bank. And let's face it, as someone who follows the news and is a journalist, how often do you read about Kashmir now? Barely ever. You don't read about it. I mean, of course, you can find it if you want to go online, I mean, obviously. But in general, Kashmir is kind of invisibilized, right? As is frankly mostly calm. Israel-Palestine, I would argue, is in the news all the time, I think often with really bad reporting, but it's in the news in every few days. But I think often the context, such as what I'm saying and others are saying, is not discussed. It's very much, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, it's a conflict and there's there's sort of Jews on one side and Arabs on the other side and why can't they just get along? Why can't they just get in a room and work it out? Well, that would like be the, nice. Uh, <laughs> vice editor you talk about at the beginning. Yes. It was like, uh, we can't literally, and also in the chapter before the conclusion where, you know, it's like if you show literal video of... Israeli occupation and violence against Palestinians that's biased. You can't, you know, it's not there's, balanced. A, there's a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? With these? I mean, fuck it. Yeah. I mean, I think to be, I should have put this in the book, but Vice, I know Vice is kind of on its last breath now, but Vice has done some good journalism in the last years actually around Palestine. Um, interestingly enough, some of the better short documentaries Vice actually has done. People can find them if they haven't seen it. They can Google that. There's been some very strong stuff on Vice. But at the same time, what I say in the book obviously is also true, that all of these organisations then and I think still now feel, and this touches on maybe what we talked about at the beginning, there is still this, I don't know if it's reluctance or uncomfortableness or nervousness around talking about Israeli violence and Israeli occupation and because it ties into what we said before that people don't want to play into these tropes of, oh, you know, Israel controls the world or Jews are so powerful because of these anti-Semitic tropes. And, yes, anti-Semitism is real and it's actually growing as a threat. But I say in the book and I've said elsewhere that Israeli actions, in my view, are contributing to that. It doesn't justify violence against Jews, obviously, but it's like saying after 9-11, and the U.S. doing horribly criminal shit around the world, there was a surge in anti-Americanism. Of course there fucking was. It doesn't justify killing an American, you know, citizen, I don't know, walking around Barcelona or something. Obviously not. But there was a growing, people were pissed off. They were angry and they had right to be. So the idea that Israeli actions wouldn't contribute to anti-Semitism to me is just bullshit. Of course it does.
anybody who's ever been a uh, uh, critical of Israel, um, even just a little bit, knows that it, it's also very much a shield that is used in in really bad faith ways um, to delegitimize or, or uh, any any criticisms whatsoever. Which I think also is uh, itself extremely dangerous because it, um, it 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 draws no distinction between actual. Um, anti-Semitism, um, which needs to be, you know, rooted out and called out wherever it is, um, versus, uh, legitimate critiques of Israel, um, uh, which, you know, that are not uh, anti-Semitic, right? It, it, it collapses any distinction between the two to the detriment of, um, Israel and the Jewish people in the long run. But I think this is also something we continually see in your reporting is that there seems to be a real, um, you know, well, in the long run, we're all dead kind of a <laughs> idea here where it's about short term um, gains and relationships and, and, and these and the kind of short term perpetuation um, of this. And, you know, I, I know we're kind of coming up on time here and I wanted to just touch on one last uh, thing, which is that, you know, in all of my, uh, you know, many, many years now myself of of studying and writing about surveillance and control technologies um, around the world and often focusing on um, their use on marginalized um, and vulnerable populations as the kind of, you know, the the vanguards or the frontiers of these technologies. Um, there is always this kind of sense, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, that, oh, that's really terrible that that's happening to those people. Whew, I'm glad that's not me, you know, um, there, there's, you know, there's that kind of sense of like, I'm insulated from this because I'm privileged in some way. I'm the, I'm the party in power. Um, I have money. I'm the right race or, or sex or gender or what religion, whatever it might be that, that insulates me, protects me from the police or from a regime or who a, a corporation or whoever it may be. And inevitably, though that that's that's never the reality these things have an inherent tendency to creep um, to get turned around on you in ways you don't expect or you don't even notice um, and you talk about this in the in the book as well that you know you we talked about the Pegasus um, you know spyware made by the NSO group um, and for a you know uh, for a very long time this is kind of held up as a um, a, a paragon of is of Israeli innovation uh, and you know ex it was exported very profitably all over the world and you know seen uh, very favorably uh, until it was used on um, Israelis and used on Israeli politicians um, for you know blackmail purposes right and then suddenly hey now you're not supposed to be using that on us um, and then we see the same exact thing with like the kind of with the border technologies in Europe that's fine if you use it on those people. But hey, wait, now you're using it on us? That wasn't the deal. We shouldn't have to make the argument that it's wrong um, because it might be used on you. We should instead be able to make the argument it's wrong because it exists and it's being used on anybody regardless of who they are. Um, that is morally abhorrent. Um, but 
It is unfortunately the case that for a lot of people, that's not convincing. Um, but what is more convincing is this idea that it will come for you. Not it might come for you, or maybe it'll come from you, or you might lose your position and slip down into a, a more vulnerable population. No, no, it will come for you. It always does in some way. Um, so I don't know. Could you could you talk about that a little bit more too? Because here we are talking about this kind of, you know, this, this antagonistic relationship, Israel using Palestine as a laboratory, as a test bed to create these technologies, the idea um, that, you know, these will then be used on, on, you know, their enemies or the reason why ethno-nationalists around the world support Israel is because, well, we can use their technologies and tactics on our enemies or whatever it might be. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about how eventually this distinction itself collapses, that there is no um, them versus us, that eventually we are all captured by the same tactics, the same technologies in some way? As you say, the occupation always comes home. It always does. I mean, look, for example, even if you put aside Israel for a minute, you know, the US actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, who also used both those wars, by the way, as testing grounds for new weapons, and many US police forces ended up buying huge amounts of military technology and tools from uh, that now end up on American streets that are going after African-Americans and whoever might be on the streets. The occupation came home. In Israel, the occupation always comes home. And the idea in Israel geographically, many listeners might not be aware, but when you're in Tel Aviv, people often go to Tel Aviv and they say, what are you talking about this occupation? I'm in Tel Aviv. It's a beautiful beach. Everyone's relaxed. Everyone's lovely. You know, they're not coming after me. It's very gay-friendly. Like, what, what, are you, what are you complaining about? What's everyone talking about here? And, yeah, you can live in that bubble in Tel Aviv and it's lovely and cool and everyone's chilled out, but literally half an hour down the road, literally half an hour down the road is the occupation. Now, the idea that one can separate the two, you can choose to live in a bubble, sure, but as you said, eventually those tools and technologies will come home. Either you're being, being spied on, you're being monitored, you're being surveilled, and also, you know, one of the things I, I talk about a bit in the book, but I obviously went to print before I knew the outcome of this, but the, in the last six months there's been huge amounts of Israeli protests, Israeli Jewish protests against Netanyahu's government, against these so-called reforms for the, to the Supreme Court. And much of the world media has swallowed this bullshit, essentially saying, well, it's Israeli Jews, they really care about democracy. Really? Why is it that there are literally no Palestinians protesting? Why is that, I wonder? They're not protesting because they don't want to save Israeli democracy. What does Israeli democracy mean? It means a state for Jews. And there are some Israeli Jews who have been protesting with the Palestinian flag, saying, while you maintain an occupation, you are not a democracy. We are in a situation in Israel where they're currently likely to pass legislation that the flying of a Palestinian flag will be illegal. <laughs> I mean, what does one even say about that? Now, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's almost you get lost for words. I mean, it's actually weirdly unofficially illegal now. There's so many examples for years where police just pull down his Palestinian flags if you're waving it. Why? Just because, I mean, it's mental. 
And I say all this because, as you rightly say, all these tools and technologies do end up here. I mean, I this the section in the book on this Israeli company, Cellbrite, which is not as well known, but it's a massive Israeli surveillance company that sells one particular tool to huge numbers of police forces around the world. It's basically a way for them to hack into phones, iPhones or Androids. And in the US, virtually every virtually every major government department uses this technology. Uh, most other countries use this technology to hack into phones. So police force arrests you, wants to get into your detail. This is the technology they're likely to use. Now, why is this relevant? It's relevant because Cellbrite has sold this technology to some of the worst regimes in the world, the most repressive regimes in the world. And where's that experience and training come from? The occupation in Palestine. So, as you say, people think living in New York or Sydney or God knows where in the West, well, that happens to those awfully poor people over there. It's delusional. I mean, if nothing else, what did people take away, for example, from the Edward Snowden documents, which weren't about Israel particularly, though Snowden did release stuff about Israel too, which I feature in the book. It showed that mass surveillance wasn't just happening to, say, the Chinese or the Russians, it was happening to us. The Americans, the West, the Australians, the New Zealanders, whoever it may be. So, yeah, I think people, if they're not aware, although listeners to this podcast probably are, but in general people should be more not just angry but raising this issue and trying to challenge it and to expose these kinds of companies and making more people aware that these kinds of evasive technologies not just come for all of us but they have a genesis in the most brutal policies imaginable. I think that's a great place to end it because I, I would say you know your book is a, a crucial resource um, in that in that fight. You know, it's 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 such an informative book. I you know I was aware of a lot of this, but reading your book really showed me just how much I was not aware of as well, and how much longer this more history nightmares. really goes. Back. <laughs> yeah, more yeah, 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 sorry about that. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, you know, Very well, useful, necessary. Some new nightmares, you know, some, some, yeah. uh, you know, change <laughs> yeah. things up a little bit. Um, yeah. But no, yeah. it's, it's a fantastic book. It is so well reported. It's so detailed. Um, I, I definitely recommend everybody pick it up, uh, and read it, um, because it is just so, so relevant. Um, not only for the things that, you know, if you listen to TMK that you care about, but as I, you know, as you detail and I think as you end the book on, like, you know, this is not, a historical document, right? Like this is very much ongoing and it's very much ramping up. Um, this is a future focused, uh, analysis of, um, not, not just what's happened, but uh, where we're going. And, and, and I really do think as well, I mean, you know, that the conditions of the world are such that, um, it will support, um, this, uh, you know, this further 
Palestinianization of, of populations and Israelification or ghettoization of, of countries, um, that, you know, there will be, um, many, many more, um, you know, Palestine laboratories uh, uh, around the world, I think. Um, and that's, that's, you know, not something, that's something we need to be actively fighting against. If not for their sake, then for all of our sakes. Um, and so thank you again, Anthony, for, for coming on, uh, and discussing it. Um, we'll of course throw a link to the book in the episode, but is there anything else you would like to plug or direct people's attention to? No, I mean, obviously, yes, everyone should buy at least 10 copies, but if people want more information <laughs> about me, it's just my name.com, anthonylowenstein.com, and my website. And if you Google me, there's lots of other stuff. So, yeah. That'd be great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Fantastic. Thank you. And and you, of course, every, uh, everybody can else can, uh, can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff over there. So until next time, later. Adios. Yo, 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 yo,